0: There is nothing better than our Savior that we worship, and there are few things better than getting to hear our Savior's words as He speaks to us. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, is listen to His words. If you have a Bible, if you would turn with me to the book of Second Thessalonians. Um, it's near the end of your Bible. Well, if you hit Timothy's, you've gone too far. Uh, But we're going to be in the first chapter, so if you are able, if you would stand with me as we read the words of our God from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. In all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray to you for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every result for good, and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would be glorified this morning. Lord, that you would be glorified in our worship of you. You'd be glorified in how we worship when we sing, when we play. You'd be glorified and worshiped in how we listen attentively to your word. Lord, would you be glorified and worshiped as I preach? Would it be you who gets all the glory? Lord, would you show us what you have to teach us? from this letter from 2,000 years ago, and what it still means for us today in this place. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, this morning we're starting a new series in the book of 2 Thessalonians, and I'm calling this series, I'm Standing Firm at the End of the World. You know, the church at this Greek city of Thessalonica, they had a lot of questions about the end of the world. They were curious about what was coming, and they weren't just curious about the events that were going to be off in the future. They were curious about, well, how are we supposed to live today, now, here? You know, how were they supposed to respond to the affliction and the suffering that they were facing and that was in front of them? You know, when we think about the end or the end times and the last days, we probably start thinking about the second coming of Christ, or we might think about the Antichrist. But biblically we know the last days they began with Jesus, and in one sense we are in the last days now. Both now and you know the already and the not yet. But the question is, well, how how do we live? Because when we can think about these things, we can start to get anxious. Or we can wonder about the coming suffering or affliction that we see. Maybe we see it now all over the world. We can be tempted to start trying right to identify the Antichrist or think, well, maybe the tribulation's here, maybe it's already beginning. But what I want us to do is we study this book for these next three weeks, well, I don't want us to just approach it as if we're trying to just get some intellectual answers about what might be coming. I want us to, to look at, well, what do we need to understand so that we can live rightly today, here, now, and tomorrow? And, and so today what we're going to look at and what I want us to see is I want us to look at why we don't need to be anxious about affliction. Why we don't need to be anxious about the affliction that is coming or really the affliction that we see in our own lives today. And we'll see this from the church of Thessalonians. They were experiencing lots of affliction and lots of persecution. And yet Paul writes to them and kind of gives them three reasons, I think, that they don't need to be anxious about their affliction. So the first reason that you don't need to be anxious about affliction is that if you're taking notes in your bulletin, is because affliction can grow our faith and our love. That affliction can grow our faith and our love. Now, we don't like affliction. We don't like persecution. We don't like suffering. Well, why? Because it hurts. It doesn't feel very good. Nobody likes that. It's painful. And, and we're afraid that the pain that we're enduring is harmful, that it's hurting us. It's not just hurting us. Maybe it's hurting our faith. Maybe it's hurting other things. But what we see in the example of these Thessalonians is that affliction did not destroy the church. Instead, their church is actually increasing. That their faith and their love is growing. Now, in order to understand what a miracle this is, we might need some background if it's been a while and you're, you need a refresher on the Thessalonians and their church. Well, you can read about them later on your own, encourage you to as we do this series in Acts chapter 17. That's where Paul and Silas, they go. And we see they planted the church in the city of Thessalonica. And Silas, he's also called Silvanus, so he's one of the the authors here of the letter, writing it to him. And Paul and Silas, they show up. They go to this big, important Greek city, and they go to preach the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom of Jesus. They follow their normal habit. They go into the synagogue, and they start teaching and trying to explain, hey guys, this Bible that you're, you're reading, all of it is about Jesus. Let me help explain it to you. Let me tell you how all of this points towards Christ, and he fulfills it. And their evangelism, it's successful. Some of the Jews are persuaded a lot of the Greeks who are there, who have been persuaded that the God of the Bible is true and are trying to follow the law, they hear the gospel and they embrace it. And they start following Jesus. Even some of the leading influential women of the city of Thessalonica are converted and reborn. But there's a problem. In Acts 17.5, it tells us that the Jews were jealous. And so they got some wicked men together and they formed a mob. And they went, and they went probably to what was a church meeting at Jason's house, and they drugged the leaders of the church out, and they took them before the city officials in order to punish them. And the city officials were angry about what was going on in the churches, and so they took money from them, and they kicked Paul and Silas out of Thessalonica and said, Don't you dare, excuse me, come back here. Why would this extreme reaction happen? Okay, it wasn't just that they're mean, they don't like Christians. Well, it's because the Christians were claiming, you can read about more in Acts 7, that Jesus was Lord. That he is the king of kings. That he is better than, there's nothing better than him. Not Caesar, not Rome, not your Roman peace. And this is a threat to Rome and to the Roman peace. Because the Thessalonians, they used to be an independent nation. They were really proud of themselves until Rome crushed them very brutally. But they've started to get some independence back and Rome kind of will leave them alone as long as they don't try to be independent again. As long as they're willing to say Caesar is Lord and no one else and they submit to Rome's rule, then they'll be okay. They can get left alone. But so what is happening here and what's happening to the church is this is a threat to Rome's authority. (laughs) And this is why the extreme reaction comes because they know, no, 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 we don't want to lose our peace. We want Rome to get mad. We got to get rid of these Christians who are saying that Jesus is Lord. So they feel like they have to oppose the church for their own safety as a city. And so the entire city, the government, the mob, even many of the people, you can see why they would be strongly against the church and they wouldn't like Christians in their midst. And the suffering the persecution, it continued. It didn't stop after Paul and Silas left. In verse 4, he tells us, you know, you see all this, in your persecutions and in the afflictions, that you are enduring. That enduring, it's present, it's still happening as Paul is writing this letter, so the persecutions continued. It didn't stop after Paul and Silas left. It didn't even stop after Timothy came and dropped off the letter of First Thessalonians. The persecution still being endured. They're still being afflicted. And the fact that the church exists—don't miss this—is a miracle. Okay, it's only been about three weeks before Paul and Silas left town. That's three weeks to plant a church. It's three Sundays. Okay, I don't think any church planting expert would expect that church to last or to do very well. It's not time to have any elders or have good pastors. It's just a bunch of baby Christians left alone. Hey, good luck, guys. Figure it out. Oh, by the way, everybody hates you. This new thing that you decided to believe a week ago. Now everyone wants you to stop. But, you know, it's, I, I can't be here anymore. Bye. But the church isn't just limping along. It's growing. We see in verse 3, Paul says, you know, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Did you catch that? Their faith is growing abundantly. It's not being hindered by their affliction. It's not being held back by opposition. It's not even being weakened. Their faith is growing. And it's not growing a tiny bit. It's not growing, you know, a little. Hey, you're baby Christians. It's good. You know, that's fine. Just as long as you're making some progress. No, it's growing abundantly. Their faith, it's like a tomato seed accidentally dropped behind a dumpster and you come back months later and it's massive and huge and green and there's big ripe red tomatoes all over the place. You go, wow, this is, this is abundant growth. Where did this come from? This is the miracle that God is doing. And it's not just that their faith is growing abundantly. it is, And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Even in the midst of this affliction, their love for each other is growing. Most of the time, right, love can crack under pressure, or it's at least hindered by suffering. Okay, at least in our house, when the kids are yelling and life is getting crazy, it's, you know, my love is not necessarily increasing for them. My patience is diminishing. My loving words for my wife don't, you know, appear as often when there's affliction. Okay, this is natural, and especially if this is a group of people you didn't necessarily like before anyway. This is a group of people you just met three weeks ago, not really sure what you got in common. Okay, the the church isn't a group of people who come together because we just love each other so much, and we all like the same things, and we all like to shop at the same places, and we're all from the same place originally, and we have so much in common. That's not why churches are formed. That's not why we come here to gather because we just all get along so well and we like each other. We're here because we love Jesus. We're here because we believe nothing is better than Jesus. And there's other people who think there's nothing better than Jesus. Great. I guess God made us a family. We have to hang out together. And so, yet this affliction, it's led them to love each other more. Not because they're so lovely and awesome, but just because of the work of Jesus. You know, we get short-tempered, we get angry, we can get anxious, but the Thessalonians, they are growing in faith and love. And notice, too, I'm saying, affliction can grow our faith and love. It doesn't necessarily always do it. Sometimes we, we choose fear, or sometimes we choose to quit. I'm sure some did. But what we need to understand is that suffering and affliction, it really can help us grow. It doesn't always, but we have to decide if we want to continue following Jesus in the midst of our suffering. Or if we want to quit and go somewhere else. But when we do, when when we follow Jesus anyway, our faith and our love can grow. And they can grow abundantly even in unideal circumstances like at Thessalonica. And look at how Paul responds in verse 3. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God, brothers and sisters. He looks at their affliction and their suffering and he gives thanks. He gives thanks. He doesn't pray that it's going to end. He doesn't lament how horrible the situation at Thessalonica is. He gives thanks and he says, we should always give thanks about this. We should be thankful how God is afflicting them and their love and their faith is increasing. This is awesome. That's what Paul says. How else does he respond in verse 4? Therefore, we ourselves, we boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. Paul's going around to all the churches that he enters and he's bragging about the Thessalonians. He's boasting about it. He's talking about, look at how amazing what God is doing there is. And how different is that from our response? We hear stories about churches or Christians facing affliction and persecution. What do we do? We're not usually boasting and giving thanks. If we're boasting or we're telling other people in churches it's usually, hey, sign my petition or here wow, why this is so terrible and we're complaining and whining. I don't really hear a lot of giving thanks. Usually I just hear complaints, moaning, whining. It'd be good if we could have some good biblical lament, but we don't do that very well either. If we're honest, we might want to call it lament, but we're really just complaining (laughs) like children. If I ever do hear thanks and boasting about affliction, you know, it's usually not on the cross of Jesus or in the gospel or the greatness of the church or their faith in the midst of affliction. Usually, it's just thankfulness or our freedoms here. in The United States or boasting about our protections and how awesome our country is. Okay, now, don't miss me here. I'm not complaining about our country. Not complaining about our freedoms, I'm complaining about the church. I'm complaining about our deficient faith. That That's our response. Instead of the wonders of Jesus and the wonders of what he is doing, we just complain and whine. Or we boast in the wrong thing. Look again at what Paul says in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters. And this key phrase, as is right. As is right because your love is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you is increasing. He's saying giving thanks is right. Saying he is obligated to give thanks. He's saying this is the biblical and righteous response. This is what you should be doing. He, he is impressed and he's encouraged. He sees something beautiful where we are tempted to only see something terrible and horrible. And he understands he's obligated to give God thanks because of the beauty of what he's doing. He doesn't just complain because he doesn't like it and doesn't understand it. So the question I think we should ask ourselves is, man, when we get anxious about the affliction of the world, are we just complaining about it? We give thanks for when faith and love is growing. Question for for you in your own affliction, are you whining or are you growing? I have to be honest. I, I usually whine. I can be a complainer. So this is for me, convicting as much as it is for you. But affliction, it doesn't need to lead to complaining and suffering. It can actually lead to growth in our faith and in our love. So, you know, are are we saying things like, "Ah, can you just believe how terrible things are? The world is just awful. Can't believe the persecution and the affliction all over the place. Are we giving thanks for the kingdom of God? Are we giving thanks that the kingdom is still growing? That people's faith is still growing abundantly even in places that you would be shocked that it's happening? Are we boasting about churches and Christians that we know are being faithful even if they have to meet somewhere illegally like in China? Does that just amaze us and fill us with, with hope and joy? Or does it make us whine? We ought always to give thanks as is right. I don't want to be a complainer. I want to be like Paul. I want to be better. I want to be more like Jesus and Thessalonians. I want to grow in affliction. And when I see those growing in the midst of affliction, I want to be encouraged by their faith, not just want to complain about their circumstances. So that's one reason that we, can, we don't have to be anxious about affliction is because it can help us grow. But we got two more to go. The second reason that we don't need to be anxious about affliction is because God will bring vindication and vengeance. and We don't have to be anxious because God will bring vindication and he will bring vengeance. So this entire section, kind of from verse 5 through 10, is all about the return of Jesus. These all be about the second coming. And verse 7 gives us the time when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That sounds like something worth singing about. So when that happens and Jesus returns, he will bring vindication and vengeance. So let's look at both of these. First, let's look at vindication. This vindication will come for the bride of Christ. For those who have put their faith in Jesus who have embraced the gospel and put their faith and their hope and their love in him. Verse 5, it tells us, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. This verse is a little confusing, so go easy on yourself if you didn't understand it when I first read it, or this time either. It took me you know, a couple of times through to figure out what's going on. But what he's saying here is when that Jesus returns and brings, he's going to bring vindication and vengeance, but they will be vindicated. In this first phrase, this is the evidence. So the evidence is their steadfast love and faith. The fact that they are growing in faith and love, even in the midst of persecution, proves that they truly have put their faith in Jesus. And that is evidence that Jesus will see when he returns. And when he returns and he sees the evidence of their faith and knows the reality of their faith, they will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which they are suffering. He's not going to pass judgment on them and punish them. He will will judge them, and he will judge them rightly, and they will be rewarded. And so for for them, the return of Jesus, we see in verse 7, it will grant relief to those of you who are afflicted as well to us. He will relieve their struggles. He's going to wipe the tears away from their eyes. That those who put their faith in Jesus... Those who believe in the gospel of Christ, those who have repented of their sins and begged Him for mercy, they will find that and much more when Jesus returns. And verse 10, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who believed, because our testimony to you was believed. And when He returns, we will just stand and marvel at it. Because everything we believed is true who will marvel because all the promises that God made all the way back in the beginning of the Garden of Eve, the Garden with Eve, have come true. A promise that the serpent would not win, that his head would be crushed. A promise to Abraham that the nations would be blessed through Jesus. A promise to David that a king was coming and he was going to rule forever with righteousness and grace. A promises to the crowds and to the disciples that he will come again. That promise that the world is going to be made right. Promise that death will be defeated and all things will be made new. We will marvel because we will get to see those things happen with our own eyes. As he appears in sky. That's worth saying amen about. That's a reason to not be anxious. He will vindicate. us. what a marvelous day that's going to be. You're going to not want to stop singing. You're definitely going want to listen to somebody talk for a while. Let's just, hey, shut up. Let's just marvel. marvel at what Jesus is doing right now. Look at it. And look, this isn't just a, you know, we'll see. This isn't just an idea somebody made up. This Bible isn't just something written long ago that was twisted and invented. It's true. Look here, you, you can see it. Everything that we've believed and given our lives to is true, and one day you will see that when Jesus returns. But, for those who don't believe, For the wicked, they will not experience vindication, but the vengeance of God. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You catch the fun word play there? The afflictors are going to get some of their own medicine, their own affliction back, because God's just. And His bringing justice. It's not cruel. It's not unfair. He's bringing people exactly what they deserve. Those who have been unjustly persecuting and afflicting the Thessalonians, they're going to get some of their own medicine. They're going to see how they like it. And seven, it further describes the return of Jesus and his wonder when the Lord Jesus is returned from the mighty heavens and angels in the flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot to unpack there. But you see, again, he's saying he's coming to bring vengeance. I didn't make this up. This isn't just pastors trying to do two Vs. This is just in his word. And as Christians, we believe that vengeance is the Lord's. Right? It's not our place to try and take revenge on others. We leave that to God. Well, why? Why, don't, why shouldn't we seek vengeance? Well, vengeance is the Lord. His vengeance is coming. And one day he's going to bring justice. And his vengeance is going to be much fairer than ours. His will be just where ours is biased. His vengeance will be, have all the information where ours is limited. We only see it from our perspective. His justice will be true where we can get ours wrong. His justice will not be influenced by his own feelings or his own emotions. His justice will be based on an absolute holy standard of righteousness. And his vengeance will be terrible. Part of the reason we don't need to get revenge is because God's vengeance is going to be bad enough. He doesn't need your help. does not need your help taking care of punishing the wicked. He's going to do just fine on his own. And he sees. He's keeping record and keeping account. And so when he brings his vengeance, it's coming for two groups of people. The first group is on those who do not know God. This is for those who, who do not believe what God says. We'll find out when he returns that he is Lord. Those in Thessalonica didn't like, no, Jesus isn't Lord, be quiet. We'll find out. No, 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 Jesus is Lord and his rule is here. Those who think, ah, this Bible, not really sure it's true. Well, they're going to find out one day that it is. And they're not going to be punished just because they didn't pray a prayer. It's a misunderstanding. They're going to be punished for all of their sins and all of their rebellion and all of their transgressions against the Lord God. They will be judged by God's standard. He gets to, you know, examine all of their bad deeds and all of their good deeds, and then he's gonna pull out the rubric, the teacher's key. Okay, well, here's the standard. Perfection. Let's see how you did. Then they'll get what they deserve. And it will be what they deserve. Not according to you or not according to me, because we're not the king, we're not in charge. According to the perfect, just, and good, and righteous, holy God. There's another group of people. It's not just those who don't know God, but it's those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There are some people who say they know God. Maybe they even really know a little bit about God. These might be people who claim to be Christians, or some even who claim to serve and to love God and to worship Him, but they don't actually obey Him. There's a lot of these in our corner of the world, aren't they? Okay, I'm willing to bet that most people, I, di- I didn't do this, um, but you know, I'm willing to bet if you stop most people and just ask them in Duncan or in Marlowe and Comanche, maybe even all Oklahoma, hey, hey are you Christian? Do you, do you know and believe in Jesus? Probably a good chunk of them say, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Might even tell you, oh, yeah, I go to this church or I'm a member of this church. I haven't been there in a while, but you know, my membership role is still there. Well, calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you one. Okay, those who don't obey God those who don't live as if Jesus really is Lord, they might have prayed a prayer or checked a box on a card once, but they didn't actually put their faith in Him, and actually believe in Him. They will also face God's vengeance and His justice. Now, don't miss it. It's not just, be, it's not just if you don't obey rightly, or you have to obey rightly and earn your salvation. No, it's your, your failure to obey proves that you didn't really believe in the first place. Your lack of works proves that you don't have faith. had faith there would be some evidence to show it up if someone told you that they really loved the Oklahoma Sooner football team it's just their favorite they loved them so much I would never say this obviously Um, (laughs) but if someone did I don't know who would do this but you know and they said this but they never watched a game they didn't know anybody on the team didn't know who the coaches were what the mascot is if they didn't even know where the school was located you'd probably guess you know, I'm not sure you really love the Oklahoma Sooners football team because you didn't even know the Sooners were their mascot. You, even know where they, you don't know anything about them. Right? Because if you loved them, there would be some actions that would kind of back that up to reveal that your love is true. If you really love God, you're going to obey Him because you cannot help it. We obey Him because we really believe Him, because we take Him seriously. And those who don't obey Jesus prove they don't know Him. They didn't really believe Him in the first place. And they definitely don't really know Him. They would. So, what will happen, verse 9, they will suffer the eternal punishment, or the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They'll suffer eternal punishment. Man, I, I don't like to consider myself a fire and brimstone hell preacher. I've never thought of myself that way, I've never wanted to be that. Um, I just want to teach the Bible. And I believe that the, the wonder and the beauty and the glory of Jesus is much more attractive than just trying to scare people into the kingdom. But, but look, when I read Second Thessalonians 1, nine, it tells us there is eternal destruction that awaits those who do not put their faith in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. I've done my best to try and get around it, try and explain it, I can't. I just read it and, well, there it says it. It doesn't matter if you don't like it. Okay, I don't like it. I don't think really any of us should like it. If you really like this, there might be something wrong with your heart. But when Jesus returns, we're gonna find out that it's true and our belief on the subject is not gonna affect the reality of its implementation. God is not running to democracy. And we see it's not just a punishment of eternal destruction that will await those and it is just, it is also away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Now we know that God's present everywhere, right? So that what this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean is like God, hell is a place that God is just absent from. It's like a whole well. God's omnipresent everywhere except for hell. He's just, he, he's not there. Okay, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean he can't see what's happening there or he's not in control. It means this is a place that is devoid of the blessing of God's presence. The blessing of getting to be around him there, his presence is not a blessing, it's a curse. We're here, we come and we wonder and we hope that we will get. We know that as we gather, God's presence will be here and maybe even He'll be gracious and He'll let us feel it. Okay, there in that place, you won't feel that. It's outside of His glory and it's outside of His wonder. And this is what will come when Jesus returns. We see again verse 7, what happens when the Lord Jesus is revealed. There's mighty angels in a flaming fire. Jesus is revealed. And it's not him coming down because he's never been here before. I love the way that this revealing word is used. It's not God showing up because he's been absent and taking a long trip, but now he's here to, you know, put things back in order. No, it's more like a play where it hasn't started yet, and then the curtains are opened and the actors are revealed. They've always been there. They've been present. You just haven't seen it yet. But now that it's revealed, you get to see what's going on. And for some, the revealing of Jesus is not going to be a good thing. It is not something they will marvel at. It is something that they will run in horror of. For them, it might be like a moment where they've been gossiping or saying something unkind about their mother-in-law, and then they turn around and realize, oh, she's been there the whole time. So it's been revealed. (laughs) It's not for personal experience or anything. Um, (laughs) But when Jesus is revealed like that, for some of us, and for you, I hope it will be a vindication and a day of marvel and glory. And for some, it will bring vengeance and punishment. But it doesn't have to be a punishment for any one of us. Before any of us were born, the Godhead, our, our one God in three persons, He came up with a plan to save us and to offer a way out. I mean, why does Jesus delay His return? Why does not He just come back? Because He is gracious and He is giving chance after chance after chance for people to turn and repent of their sins so they don't have to face this. And Jesus took the wrath and punishment that all of us deserve on himself in his own body. So that when Jesus returns, you don't have to experience any of that. Not because you're so awesome or you're so amazing, but because of what Jesus did for you. Because of your faith and trust in him. All you have to do is believe he already paid the bill for you. But if you think that there's no punishment awaiting you. If you think you can just be good enough and maybe the punishment won't be too bad. You will find yourself horrified when Jesus reveals himself on that last day. But for those of us who are believers, that day is not just going to be a day of glory. It is our hope. That day is why we don't have to be anxious. That day is why we don't have to worry about the affliction or suffering that's going on in the world. Why? When Jesus returns, he's taking care of it. When Jesus returns, the wicked are all going to be punished. All of the rapists and the abusers will get what they deserve. Whether or not the law has done something about it, Jesus will bring justice. When Jesus returns, all the tyrants and the murderers will face his judgment seat. When Jesus returns, those who have covered up crimes or are hidden in their iniquity and no one ever knew about it, it will be revealed and brought into light and they will be judged and get what they deserve. When Jesus returns, those whose wickedness is so great that even to recount it would make us sick, or I will not say it again from the pulpit. They will face God's judgment, and he will give them what is just and fair. So our job is to hope. We don't have to try and bring vengeance on ourselves. We don't have to try and fight the world and think well, we have to win because if we don't win, justice isn't coming. It doesn't mean we don't you know, try and obey Jesus or seek justice, but we know even if it doesn't come, it's going to be okay because Jesus is coming, and Jesus will bring his vengeance, and he's going to win. We don't have to win. We don't have to see a revival or massive churches that we pray for it. All we have to do is keep the faith. You just have to endure the affliction until Jesus returns and brings vindication and vengeance. Well, how can we endure this? Find an affliction. The last reason we don't have to be anxious is our last point number three is, is that God can make you ready. God can make you ready to endure it. It's again can. It's not, he definitely will. You've got to cooperate. You gotta put your faith in him. You gotta Believe and let him, not just try to do it on your own. The last two verses, 11 and 12, they're really a prayer. They're Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, that God would make them ready. And he would be prepared. Verse 11 begins, we always pray for you that God would make you worthy of his calling. Notice he's still praying for the church there, and he's praying that God would do a work in them. He's not praying that circumstances would change, or that they would be awesome, but that God would do something in them. God is the one who does this. They don't have to do it, we don't have to do this on our own. You don't have to be holy enough, spiritually mature enough. You don't have to just grit your teeth and try and have the right attitude. This is something that God does in us, that God can make us ready. We have to work alongside him and let him. So the prayer begins asking that God would be the one to make us worthy of his calling, that he would make us true Christians, not just in name, but in deed, and the rest of verse 11, And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. It's not just a prayer that we would want to do good things. It's a prayer that we would desire to do what God wants of us. And that we would actually do it. We would do the works of faith. That we would live out what we say we believe. And, and notice that the works, it's works of faith. It's not works of law. It's not works of self-righteousness. It's just things that we do because we love Jesus. And we can't help it. We don't do them, we're trying to earn something. We do it because we've been given something. We don't do it in order to be seen as super righteous. We do it because we know only Jesus is righteous. We just want to be like our Savior because of what He's done for us. And notice how the prayer continues in verse 11. It says, by His power. So we're not praying that our own power would increase. We're praying that God's power would come and He would lend us some. We're praying that His power would show up. We're not praying to be stronger. We're praying for God's help. We're not praying that God would give us more faith. We are praying that he would come and help our little faith. Because it's not enough. This is why we need the power of, the, of God. This is part of the gospel. The gospel isn't that just Jesus saves you from your sins. Now you're good. Figure it out on your own. Go on your own power. Our power isn't good enough on our own. This is why so many of my prayers, if you notice at the end of my sermons, are asking that the Holy Spirit would come and help us do what I've just been preaching about we should do. Because if we could do it on our own, we wouldn't need to hear sermons about it. We wouldn't even need to gather together. We would just, we'd be good. We'd be holy and figure it out on our own. But we don't. We fail over and over and over again. And we need His power. Because when we rely on our own power, we find out that we're pretty powerless. In his prayer, it ends in verse 12, with the result of our prayers. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're praying that in all these things that, that God would be glorified. We're not praying that we would be glorified. We're not praying that people would look at us and think, Wow, what an amazing church. or They're such an awesome Christian. I just look up to them so much. We're praying they would look at us and think, Wow, what an amazing Jesus. Wow, what an amazing Savior. They must worship. Wow, their God must be better than anything. There must be nothing better than him. Beloved, we don't have to be anxious about any of these afflictions. Any afflictions here, any afflictions to come that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come because God can make us ready. You don't have to do more. You don't have to read more or pray harder. You just need Jesus. Stop trying to do it on your own and ask him for help. You don't need to be anxious because our God can make us ready if you let him. So this morning we've seen three reasons we don't need to be anxious about affliction. We don't have to be anxious because it can grow our faith and love if we let it. We don't have to be anxious because Jesus is coming. He's going to vindicate us and he's going to bring vengeance on those who deserve it. And because God can make us ready to endure any of it that we face. So we can take heart to With Jesus' coming, all will be made right. Close us in prayer ask for our worship team to come up and lead us in worship one more time. God, I, I ask again that you would just help us. Lord, you would help us to be ready. Personally, I can, I can be anxious. I can worry about a million things that I don't need to worry about, let alone afflictions and suffering. Lord, I ask that you would um, sear these truths on our hearts. Lord, you would help us to believe them, that you would, you would use the suffering and affliction that we may face or to come to encourage our faith and love and that we would grow in it. Lord, we ask that we would put our hope in your return. Lord, that we wouldn't um, put our, our hope in our own ability to make your kingdom happen here, but that we would do our best and when it all blows up or if it doesn't work out how, how we thought, we can just look and say, well, Jesus, you're coming and you're going to fix it and you're going to take care of it and I can't wait. Lord, would you please, would you fulfill your word? Would we echo the prayers of Paul? Would you make us ready? Would you make us ready for the afflictions that are going to face us as soon as we leave these doors? If the afflictions we're sitting with now as we sit in this place. We ask these holy things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior in song once more.